Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. It started to become important to me to not just do the job, but to be an example of what women could do. I owe being here to women who had to fight down some barriers before me, and so I'm going to try to kick another few down on my way to make it easier for the people coming after me. And just out of principle, it, it didn't feel right to have a job and not push back if I felt things were um, antiquated or, or, or sexist. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. Man, this is so tough. It's actually funny. Um, I was a heptathlete in college, uh, which is uh, seven events, and it's sort of the jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and I kind of feel like that's me in a nutshell. I'm fascinated by a million things, and I'm not necessarily the expert or completely obsessed with any one of them. So I guess my greatest passion is probably learning things. Um, my biggest, biggest, greatest passion is just being curious about everything, and then whether it's a wine tour where I ask a million questions and everyone's like, why, why do you need to know how this stuff is made? Or it's, you know, a guest that I have and I get to dive deep in on what they do and where they're from. Um, I think I just really like learning things. Meet Sarah Spain. I've yet to meet her in person, but we've exchanged conversation on Twitter. Sarah has a huge voice in the sports world, much of which can be attributed to her passion for telling stories. She has also played a huge role in the world of bringing a female voice to a male-dominated profession. Sarah is a Peabody-winning radio host, TV personality, and writer. She is one half of Sarah and Fitz radio show, airing weeknights on National ESPN Radio, a writer for ESPNW.com, host of ESPN's That's What She Said podcast, a regular panelist on Around the Horn, and a Sports Center reporter. No one makes it to that stage in the professional world without a strong voice. But what I love most about her, she represents the voice, tenacity, intentionality that I want for my children, especially my daughter Rose. She is a role model, glass ceiling breaker, a conversation starter, and a change agent. Her voice is changing the space of sports and sports reporting. She is changing the language we are using when talking about women, girls, and sports. She changed mine and even corrected me numerous times in this interview. I hope she changes yours. Oh, I'm Sarah Spain. I'm an ESPN radio host, TV personality, and writer, and a former college athlete, former wannabe actress, comedian, who managed to find a a little spot in the sports world that's um, entertainment and also journalism. What are your early beginnings? Where did you... Uh, go to school. How did you decide to do this work? Take us back to the beginning where it all started. You're like, dude, this is awesome. This is where I want to go. So I grew up, uh, I was born in Cleveland, but my family moved to to the Chicago area when I was really young. So no real Cleveland memories. Uh, I grew up about 45 minutes north of Chicago. um, And I was a kid that was always trying to perform singing, putting on plays, you know, charging my parents minimal attendance to buy a ticket to the play that I was going to perform for just them in the, in the living room. Um, and, and always playing sports, always active and outside. I was actually six feet tall by the time I was 12. So as you can imagine, I was dominating the, uh, the other young ladies around me that were a uh, foot shorter. 
Um, and I grew up in the era of Michael Jordan and the Bulls. So I was just obsessed with basketball and Michael Jordan and that team. Um, my parents weren't really into sports. Uh, they played tennis and golf, and they occasionally would go to a tennis tournament when it was in town, but they didn't really like watching, you know, the, the traditional big four men's sports. Um, and so my love for sports came through playing and through that Bulls team. Um, and so I ended up going to Cornell University. I, was, I played basketball, field hockey, and track in high school. I was all-state and band and chorus. I was a total overachiever, loved to do literally every activity and, and loved, you know, school and everything else. Um, I ended up going to Cornell. I was a heptathlete there and uh, still tried to do some of the acting and singing stuff on the side whenever I could, which was a really hard balance with uh, sports always at the same time as plays and, and that kind of thing. So um, I knew I wanted to move to L.A. after college and just give acting and comedy a shot, but I didn't have much of a background because, like I said, all the performances and all the plays and acapella groups and everything were at the same time as track and I knew I had a really limited, you know, that was going to be the end of my uh, athletics career. I wasn't going to go on to the Olympics or anything. So I wanted to finish up my, my years in college and then focus on on the acting and, and all that stuff. So moved out to L.A., went back to home to Chicago for a couple of months, and then moved out to L.A., took acting classes and did auditions off of Craigslist and breakdown services and stuff, um, and eventually took a hosting boot camp, a weekend uh, several day class in TV hosting, hosted a fake Chicago Bears show to practice teases and intros and outros. And the teacher said, oh, do you want to do sports? And I said, no, no, there's not really women in, in sports. There's hardly any that you see. And they don't get to be funny and entertaining. They're either very serious anger people or they're, you know, very bubbly sideline supporters that only get, you know, two minutes to quickly just report an injury. And there's not a lot of personality. So I'm not really interested. And she said, well, it seems very natural, something to think about. So I took a TV sports reporting class at UCLA Extension and just kind of thought to myself, why haven't I, it wasn't that I thought I couldn't do it. It just literally never occurred to me. Um, we talk a lot at ESPNW about if you can see it, you can be it. And I just, I didn't see it. There was no Michelle Beadle or Katie Nolan or some of these, you know, personality driven, funny women that got to be themselves. It, it was so limited. So um, then I decided to just give it a shot, got a job working as a PA at a nightly highlight show at FS1, cutting tapes of games and deciding what the highlights would be and writing what the anchor people would say about the highlights. And that was a great crash course in all the sports. And um, still try to do – I did the whole Second City Conservatory, so I did that on the side. But the sports stuff really started to pick up as I started writing for some websites for free and auditioning for some stuff. And that's when I kind of realized that this seemed like a good fit for me. When did you find your voice? in all of this and realizing that, hey, I can do this, but I have to find my own voice to be able to separate myself, to, to be able to go in and try to, to get a hold of some of these gigs and opportunities. You know, I think I knew that that was going to be what, what made it work for me, but it took a little bit of time to get the confidence. Um, like I said, I did Second City, so I approached a lot of what I did with comedy leading the way. That was, that was my... That was where I thought I separated myself from everybody else. Um, but I still would go into auditions and meetings trying to fit into this sort of idea of what I thought they were looking for based on what I saw on TV and on the websites that I went to. Um, you know, at the time, it was the old boys club of sports blogs. And so if I wanted funny, young, skewed entertainment uh, in the form of a sports blog, I kind of had to take along with it 
pictures of quarterbacks, girlfriends in their bikinis and shots at women and, you know, the misogyny that really has nothing to do with the commentary, but because that's who they were appealing to in terms of an audience, it really was, was rampant. Um, and so there was a part of me that thought, oh, that's just how it is. And it didn't occur to me till later that it didn't have to always <laughs> be like that. But um, I, um, I, I, I did bring that back when I moved back to Chicago, wanting to cover my own teams and, and, and get into a town that I thought was really just crazed about its sports and more into whether you knew your stuff than whether you looked like the perfect, you know, I found myself losing out on gigs in LA to this like model type personality. And I was like, I got to go somewhere where it's, you know, knowing your stuff and, and being passionate about it is what leads the way. And when I got there, the job I took at Mouthpiece Sports was this startup website with a slant towards hearing from the athlete, no spin from, you know, whoever was, was covering. And so um, I took that improv background and did really creative and fun and clever stuff with the athletes that I had access to instead of straight interviews. Um, and that was really a great way to realize from the beginning that that was separating me from everyone else. Um, and then my first kind of bigger gig was as an update anchor for ESPN 1000 radio and being on the air every day and sort of being the only woman that had been on the air regularly there for in 11 years, it started to become important to me to not just do the job, but to be an example of what women could do. And I would say I was only maybe two years into that job when I stopped caring as much about just being the girl that everyone wanted to get a beer with and talk sports with and cared more about trying to change the game from within it. And, and I think you do have to play the game for a while before you can change it. And so understanding where to draw the line and then when to just have a thick skin when it comes to jokes or um, expectations when you're working with 40 dudes and you're the only woman. Um, and then after a little while, I just thought it, I owe being here to women who had to fight down some barriers to, before me. And so I'm going to try to kick another few down on my way to make it easier for the people coming after me. And just out of principle, um, just it, it didn't feel right to have a job and not push back if I felt things were um, antiquated or, or, or sexist. Do you remember the first time that you pushed back? Was it a big athlete? Was it a big personality? Was there a certain topic or did it just start happening? I don't remember the, the exact first time. I do remember that all the guys that were hosts on the radio station, um, their banter occasionally – I would I would open up the update door, turn on my mic, and and kind of give him a little talking to. Whether it would be something like he throws like a girl, or you know, talking about female athletes only in terms of whether she's lost her fastball or is still attractive, right? Um, those kind of offhand comments, I didn't always, but I would occasionally make sure that I stepped in to correct them. Um, and then one of the things that I remember that stood out to me was um, I was writing for ESPNW. By this point, I had added that to my to my jobs. I was doing the updates at the radio station and then writing for ESPNW. And I I wrote a story about OCU Minora and LaShawn McCoy having a sort of Twitter war of words where they would insult each other. And at one point, one of one of them wished the other Happy Mother's Day. They had used all sorts of terms for each other throughout this back and forth. Um, that were insulting to women. And I wrote a story about it, and I just wrote about the inequality of insults. But at this point, you can be fined in most major sports leagues for homophobic remarks, for racist remarks. Uh, there's a real policing of language that is necessary, as much as that might feel difficult for sometimes people to understand. 
um, there there are there are expectations that are set when people use certain words and then allow them to continue. And so leagues have really taken up preventing and controlling that. But in the meantime, misogynist remarks and using women as sort of like the butt of the joke remains the last bastion of sort of the wild, wild west. And to the point where just a couple of years ago, the Chicago Sun-Times, I think it was, or maybe the Chicago Tribune, had um, one of the Blackhawks' big opponents in the playoffs photoshopped into a skirt on the back page of the sports section and that was meant to obviously insult him was to feminize him and so I wrote about how it just felt like we hadn't still gotten to the point where we understood the power of dozens of little microaggressions every day that add up to people believing that women are inherently inferior that they're inherently less than and making fun of a man for being in any way like a woman was the deepest insult and what was powerful about it was people sent it to OCU Minora and said, look at this B word. What a P word. She should, this is why women shouldn't watch sports. And instead of agreeing with them, he actually wrote me back on Twitter and retweeted the story and said, I've never really thought about it like this. I'll stop doing it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I actually can make people change their minds or at least think about things differently just by writing about things from a perspective that they probably aren't hearing from everyone else in sports. And then it became more important for me to take on those issues when they, when they came around. One of the things that um, really drives me with this conversation is uh, my daughter Rose is seven. And this past year, she and I were watching. I'm a big Clemson football fan. I went to Clemson twice. I worked for football for them under two different coaches. And so obviously I have a draw to them. And, you know, it was after one of the big games, I think it was like Syracuse, where we just barely pulled it out. And Rose and I were sitting there watching SportsCenter afterwards. And she looked up and she said, Daddy, why is there only one girl talking about and there's three other guys? And I didn't have a response for her. And I, and I told her, I was like, do you think you'd want to do that? She was like, oh, I could do that if I wanted to. Because I want to be at that seat as well. That is a real conversation with young, impressionable girls who are being inherently talked about their future from the moment that they come out of the womb. Are you going to be a princess? Are you going to be this? Are you going to be that? And my wife and I have strategically not talked about gender references as it relates to males and females. Right. But she is already asking questions about girls and boys on the set of Sports Center. As someone like yourself, how do you react to that? What are your thoughts with that? And where do you think you're playing in that role as it relates to the next wave of women taking on these sports roles? Yeah, I mean, th- that's why I think it's interesting to point out that were it more common to see women in sports, I might have started my career years earlier. And there's a benefit to the waiting. I love the perspective I got from doing comedy and from trying to do acting and from some of the adventures that I had beforehand. And I am more well-rounded, I would say, than some people who started listening to sports radio at five and that's all they've ever cared about. So there's, there's a benefit to that. But at the same time, I did take this circuitous route because there was nobody presented to me. You know, Watching the Bulls growing up, there wasn't a single woman doing anything in any capacity broadcasting, playing, 
whatever, maybe writing, but I didn't tend to look at bylines growing up. It wasn't a priority for me because the journalism aspect wasn't what drove me. It was the sports aspect. Um, and so I do think I take it very seriously that people are watching and that unfortunately still for women, a lot of people will use one example to speak for all, right? If one woman messes ah. up, then they say, well, that woman doesn't know her stuff. So probably all women getting these jobs don't know her stuff. Even if a guy can make multiple mistakes and they'll just say, oh, he was probably, it, he misspoke, right? There's an assumption of knowledge that a guy has to work really hard to convince you he doesn't have. And with women, it's the exact opposite. There is assumption that they don't know their job, what, what their job is. They got it for their looks or they got it because they, there was a diversity hire. And then they need to prove otherwise. And it, there's a lot more pressure to the, to the latter, right? Um, and so I do take it very seriously, not to the point that it's crippling, because then I'm not going to do a very good job, but to the point where, you know, I'm doing a radio show right now, uh, weeknights on ESPN. Spain and Fitz, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern. And I'm the only Love woman, it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only woman that has a regular weekday show. Anytime between that 7 to whatever. You know, there are a couple women on the weekend shows, but um, I take that really seriously. Even if I wanted to change my schedule and not do it anymore, there is a part of me that would cling to the idea of until there are more women, I don't want to stop. Because then if they don't, if there isn't another woman who comes up soon after, we're right back to girls and little boys and, and everybody else hearing every hour of the day for the entire week, not a single regular female voice. And so um, it's really important to me. And I also think it's really important to sort of dispel narratives about how many women there can be and how many there's room for. I really truly think that the narrative of women not helping each other is mostly facilitated by those who wish to keep women in limited numbers. I have not mm. had that experience at all in my career. I think if you tell women you're fighting with each other for everything and there's only room for one, inevitably there will be some of that. And I'm sure that there are people in, maybe in other industries uh, that have that and it's a true problem. I don't know if it's because it's sports and so many of us played and so the idea of a team and lifting each other up, I don't know if it's because you know, my connection to ESPNW. So a lot of the people I work with are very much about empowering, but honestly, I think it's a BS narrative. And I find instead that every woman that rises up the ranks and does amazing stuff just makes the rest of us look better. There's more of us. It's more, it's more, it's less surprising when you see us. It's obvious that they're good at what they do and they know their stuff. I mean, you look at the women that I was, I was just doing ESPNW summit in New York, the women that are, Working for ESPN in those positions are, you know, Jess Mendoza, who graduated Stanford in three years and then got her master's in a year while playing for the Olympics. Julie Foudy, who deferred Stanford Medical School to play in the Olympics and be the two-time World Cup champ. Mina Kimes, who's a Yale graduate. Laura Rutledge, who was studying abroad in Japan while doing ballet and had three different scouting jobs while still in college. Like, the women that are succeeding are so much more badass in so many cases than the men. Hell Not yeah. that they're better at the job, but the the stuff that they had to do to put themselves in a position to even get a shot. Um, and so the more there are and the better they are, yeah, so maybe every once in a while they, just like the men at the company, might take a gig that I might be up for. 
but I, then I just got to work harder and be better. If, if you see it as a competition and you try to limit who, you know, who is allowed in these positions, I think you're buying into people who actually want to hold women down. There's a big narrative out there in the social spaces and digital spaces, um, specifically a lot from the consumers, that ESPN is taking on these more social conversations on top of sports. And do you consider that true? And if so, do you think it's important to find the balance between sports and social issues, specifically like women in sports? Or is that... It's hard because um, my consumption is at an all-time high because of what I do, right? Um, not only just as a, not only just as like someone who works at ESPN, but when you end up having a nightly radio show for three hours, you are consuming more than ever because you need to know literally the last thing that happened in everything, right? You can't really take a day off and be like, wow, CJ McCollum hasn't been holding up his weight. And then you're like, oops, I didn't see last night's game where he destroyed, right? So you, you, I end up consuming more than ever. So to compare it to other times is difficult for me. I will say that there's a real convenient rewriting of history when people say, I wish we could go back to just sports and they're forgetting about, um, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali, or they're forgetting about, uh, you know, Olympic Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson, Olympic protests. There's all sorts of elements of those conversations. I do think that when people say I wanted to go back to the way it was, sometimes what they're really just saying is, I just want straight white men to be talking. Um, because yes. when they would say, I want just sports, you'd say, Oh, well, did you notice? that they used to do segments about going to Vegas and, and getting away from their wives? Or did you notice how they used to do segments about things that seemed very comfortable and familiar to you, but maybe didn't for people of color or women or LGBTQ people? What you want is to hear from people who look like you and sound like you talking about people like you. And as soon as somebody has a different perspective, you then want to term that politics or social issues. Um, a woman sharing an experience or a, talking about women's sports isn't a social issue. It's still sports. It's just maybe unfamiliar to you. And if you don't want to open up your perspective and understand and hear other experiences and perspectives, you're going to push back on it. So I also think there's more time to fill than ever before. There are more channels. There are more shows. There are more websites. There's streaming. There's digital plus, you know, there's more time to fill. So you're going to spend time talking about sometimes um, a wider variety of issues and stuff than it used to be when you only had uh, your five minutes at the end of a news broadcast to give the highlights. Um, and again, I think we're more divided than ever on so many issues. And what happens then, too, is that people start to align conversations with sides so that even though they have literally nothing to do with politics, once they become politicized, then you want to push back on it if it's not your side of the opinion or your side of the debate. Um, I think there's absolutely a balance, but I think sometimes people who say they're clamoring for more sports, if it got really into the weeds and they didn't understand the, the, the saber metrics of baseball, or they didn't really understand if someone got too deep into offensive line play, then they might say, wait, I want it back the way it was, but I want to pick and choose. Right. And so it's always right. finding a balance of how, how deep of a dive do you go into the sport itself? How much are people more interested in storylines? Like the, the, the popularity of the NBA is not just good players right now. It's drama 
It's a soap opera of who's going where to what team. Player empowerment and agency has changed so much over the last couple of years. Um, and people are fascinated by that. So that's, that's you know, I, I think it's just balancing all those things and being interesting storytellers so that whatever it is you're talking about, people find it compelling. One of the things that I think is fascinating is how you really handle a lot of the social media spaces, specifically on Twitter. You know, Twitter, I've, I've been on it since the very beginning, and it has evolved over the years. And now it's a space where you are a part of it, where you're not only constantly chatting with the consumer, chatting with everybody online, but you're also consistently having to bear your thick skin with the crazy dudes that all they want to talk about is your looks. They're focused on the looks. How do you how do you bear that thick skin and what is your approach to knowing you're going to be on the space and you're going to get it, but then how to hand it back so that you're kind of, I guess, protecting your own space? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll, uh, is that I joined it very early on, too, and I think it's easier to get a thick skin if it's gradual. So I started out right. and I was working for Mouthpiece Sports and not that many people were following me and occasionally people would say really mean things, but it was a small amount and that was very hurtful to me early on. Um, you know, are you pregnant or are you just fat or that shirt looks like a picnic table cover or, you know, whatever else. And um, over time, like anything else, unfortunately, you do get used to it. Now, there were certain things, it's funny, I, I, re, I, I looked back at one point at Um, having actually sent uh, a guy's information to security at ESPN because I just started at ESPN 1000 and he was finding me on every outlet, email, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and saying that he hoped my dog would get hit by a car and he hoped my husband beat me and all this other stuff. And I would like to think that now I would still report that, but I don't know. Like I think at this point I've gotten so used to it that I just kind of mute or block and move on, and that might be problematic in terms of being able to see real warning signs for someone who's actually dangerous. Um, but over time, it's just you, your skin gets thicker and thicker. You get more and more used to it. Um, you realize that the people who are doing it are deeply dissatisfied because I don't have any friends. I don't know anyone who would spend their time just messaging people hateful things. Now, they might disagree with their opinion on something or say, you're an idiot, the Celtics are going to come back better than ever, but they're not going to say awful things about their family or their looks or personal, you know, shots. Um, And so when I remind myself of that, I tend to just feel sorry for the people instead of upset or angry. Now, if they all get to me on a day, like I was doing HQ a couple weeks ago in Miami. And for whatever reason, that week was just people coming at me about everything I wore and how I looked. And so eventually, you know, you get a bunch in one day and you're like, man, I must look like crap today. (laughs) And it hurts your feelings. Um, I choose when to respond, um, and a lot of people will always say, why do you waste your time on this? Don't feed the trolls. And, you know, Lindy West uh, is a feminist writer, and, and her book uh, just was made into um, a TV show with A.D. Bryant on Hulu, Shrill. And she's just written a lot about this because she's had people literally create accounts of her, of her deceased father to send her messages about how disappointed they are in her as a person and stuff like that. Just really cruel, evil things. And she says very smartly, and I agree with her, like you can't just digest things all day and not ever regurgitate anything back. You're being asked then to, to take on 
all this stuff all day long without responding. And so if you feel like responding or if there's one you want to you know, clap back at, then by all means do it. So I do a lot of muting and blocking. And then I, I like to pick and choose either someone's terrible grammar or when their opinion is so garbage that everyone needs to see it and shout it down. Or if it represents a common opinion. And I feel like there are people in the margins who aren't really commenting that are probably still making up their mind about that topic. Let me get in there and educate on why it's a terrible opinion and why it's misogynist or sexist or damaging. Um, and so I really, I really pick and choose. I don't waste my time all day responding to people. Um, but when I do, it's, it's either just I'm feeling feisty or I want to embarrass them or there's a larger point to be made. What is your sole voice in sports right now? What are you going after that at the end of the day you hope people come to you to get expert or your opinion or your thoughts? What is that niche you're trying to create or have created for you right now? Interesting. I don't – you know, it, it's, it sort of depends. Like when I'm doing work for ESPNW, so writing stories for them or hosting the summit we just had in New York, um, it's about – the empowerment of female athletes and sports fans. And it's about um, helping people believe and invest in that. You know, I just did a panel with the 99ers on the 20th anniversary of their big world cup win and talking about the ways that they had to tell the U S soccer federation and FIFA, we do not want small regional stadiums. We believe in this. We think people are going to come and then they're selling out 90,000 seat stadiums. Right. And so it's a perfect metaphor for what we need with women's sports and female athletes is if you don't invest and put in the legwork and the groundwork, if you undersell and underguess on how people feel about them, that's what's going to happen. If you give it a shot and you put in the money and the time and the work and the, and the ads and the press and the publicity, people want to care about this stuff. And it's proved with the Olympics and the World Cup and, and all this stuff. And so I think that that's where I want to focus when I'm doing W stuff is just continuing to be like a powerful voice for women as, as broadcasters and as athletes um, and fans. And then the rest of my job, it's kind of tough because like with around the horn and Spain and Fitz um, and the rest of the shows I do um, HQ and Levitard and stuff, it's really just fitting in to the point where nobody really thinks, Oh, that's a woman. I'm impressed that she knows that or does that just thinks that I'm just like everyone else in terms of my capacity, but that sometimes I bring a perspective or a story that you otherwise wouldn't get. Like when I'm doing around the horn, there was one time a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago that I said, you know, we should get a women's final four NCAA tournament story. And we don't have one. And there's some good storylines, you know, let's figure out whether we want to like, who's, who's got a better shot in this game or whatever else. Um, or, you know, going to Spain and Fitz and saying, oh, I really want to talk about this Serena Williams story where she almost died in childbirth. This is the greatest tennis player ever. Which is uh, one of the most amazing stories, by unbelievable. the way. Unbelievable. I mean, she had to advocate for her own care because they literally didn't believe what, that she was, what she was suffering from, and she had to tell them, I have blood clots. This is what I need. This is going to save my life. Um, and I think there are so many people who just immediately are like, oh, people aren't interested in that. You're like, yeah, they will be. This isn't a crazy story. Um, and so being able to bring a different perspective and set of interests to a place so that it's not so homogenous and so that it, people are given a chance to hear other interesting and compelling stories. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I like I said before, jack of all trades, master of none. I don't need people to say, 
oh my gosh, I need to get Sarah Spain on anything NBA or anything NFL. There are former players, there are analysts who that's all they focus on. I'm going to call up Jessica Mendoza for baseball. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to get Woj on for NBA breaking news. Schefter's going to tell us what's happening in the NFL. Those, those people are specialists in what they do. I want to be an opinionist who can, who can bring it on everything and that you're always, I, I guess the one niche or the through line beyond empowering women and, and, and diversity in general for people of color and LGBTQ and everything else is also, um, I'm deeply committed to fairness. <laughs> and I think that's part of why I did decide pretty early on, you know, I don't want to just be famous and have people like me and make money. I want to, I want to change things and make things better. I, I come from a family of lawyers and I also am very interested in, and like principled in terms of ideas of fairness. And so that's always kind of led the way for me in terms of what I want to talk about and how is, you know, making sure that it feels like, the sports world is as much of a meritocracy as it's meant to be. You know, us dads that are raising young girls to be women, along with our wives, are in a place right now where we're watching this natural national conversation, you know, in politics, about women being in politics, about women breaking the glass ceiling inside of large businesses, about women being in sports. And we're the, you know, the past consumers of you know, Monday night football when it all when it's all guys. And so we're making these shifts in our brains to be thinking differently and using different language. How do you talk to the dads that are raising the girls that for the dads it's scary because they they don't want their little daughters getting destroyed by their looks online. But at the same time we know that we must raise these young women so that they can be leaders too. How, how do you talk to guys like that? And I also realize that asking that question seems like that guys are supposed to shape women. That's a weird conversation. But we are the dads. How do you talk to these young dads that are raising these women and they see you tackling all these issues? Well, for one, I would say that um, as much as I understand it, it's sort of disappointing that it does often take men having daughters to be like, oh, wait, women are human beings. I care what happens to them, right? Because it that's then a becomes, good point, and thank well, you. Thank it becomes you for someone that, that that's a good one. Controlling or protecting, and once it's someone that you control or protect, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, now I care. But you know, which is always fascinating to me, especially with athletes who have single moms and then go on to be bad husbands or cheaters or abusers or anything else. And I think, why can't you see the woman you're with as as the same as the mom that you're obsessed with who raised you and worked, you know, five jobs to put you through college and get you into sports. All that, you know what I mean? Like there's this weird disconnect yeah. for a lot of men between my lover, my mother, my child, my sister, whatever. Um, but listen, if it makes you a more evolved person, when you have a daughter, then great. We'll start there <laughs> and we'll move her out from there. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, what you said earlier about, you know, you try not to have your daughter immediately get thrown into conversations about gender at a young age and just keep it open. I think that's really key. I don't know that my parents spent a whole lot of time verbalizing. You could do whatever you want. You're just as good as boys. But, but my parents are lawyers. They have a practice together. They were very much equals. I think the example of my mother was massively important to me in terms of never thinking I'm not allowed to or I can't. And again, I was an athlete at a young age, and I was six feet when I was 12. So I was 
beating all the boys in all the races. I was going, you know, we'd, we'd go to Mexico on vacation and I would go play pickup with an entire staff of men who were on break from working at like Club Med or something. And I would come in and they'd be like, uh, okay, I guess you could play, right? <laughs> so I was never afraid of just inserting myself into whatever it was that I wanted to do or what I loved, whether it was full of boys or not. And that, I think, that fearlessness and that not really believing that you're different and you can't is so key. Um, and then, you know, you're, I think that there are still very valid reasons for why we're addressing all the issues for girls and women in our society. But on the flip side, there are massively destructive expectations for boys, too, that cause them to be incredibly limited in what we expect from them and for them. And those conversations are important, too. So the key, I think, is to not get so caught up in the differences and instead to think about what makes a good person, what makes a successful person, how to empower a boy or a girl, and spend more time on that than on worrying about the rigidity of what their, their gender means for them. And it's going to come up. And like you said, your daughter brought it up to you before you had a chance to. It's going to come up. And those kinds of conversations, you need to be smart and, and you know, insightful about how you handle it. But more so than worrying about all those things, I think if you just instill the right qualities as a person that are universal, then you're giving your kid a much better shot. What do you think is your biggest female hero in the sports arena or just leadership arena right now? Who's the person that, or people that drove you and you watched every day and you're like, dude, I want to be like that? Like it was like when I was a kid, I wanted to be like Mike. I had the wings poster <laughs> over my bed. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to be like, days. yeah, um, absolutely. Kind of like the NBA, uh, like the Raptors last night. I mean, yeah. I was like, dang yeah. gum. But who, who for you? Well, is what's that interesting wing, is women? when I was growing up, I didn't have any women. I wanted to be um, on Saturday Night Live or I wanted to be on Talk Soup. So the women on Saturday Night Live were, were some. And then um, when I switched over and decided to get into sports, Kenny Maine was really the example for me and the main event, right? It was satirical and funny and smart and dry. And, um, and it wasn't until more recently that I started to see and be empowered by, um, by women. Um, Jamel Hill was a big one for me. She was very much herself and she didn't have to be this homogenous, like overly made up high heels, um, Barbie doll, which is so important to put on TV because, you know, when I was first starting out, it was mostly like Aaron Andrews that I would see. And I'd be like, okay, I'm never going to look like that. I'm never going to be like that. So I guess I don't have a shot. And so to put people who are comfortable in their own skin, like Jamal, who will literally go to an after party for the ESPYs in like sneakers and a t-shirt. Um, and for then her to be at a, at an equal setting with Michael Smith, who she was partners with forever on podcasts and TV and everything, um, knowing her stuff so well, being sarcastic and, and smart about it. And then she also was a great example for me in terms of empowerment. She came to an ESPNW summit in California. At that point, I had not done almost any television. I'd done one sports center hit and one hit on a, on an ESPNU show. And, anybody that was pitching me was getting, you know, my agent was getting back. She's just too green. We don't have any proof of her doing TV. So we don't, you know, we don't know if we can use her. Jamal saw me on stage at the SGNW summit and said, why are you not on TV? And I said, I don't know. They, they, they're not, they don't think I'm ready. And she said, next time I'm out on vacation, you're going to host my show. 
And sure enough, about a month and a half later, they called me and flew me out, and I filled in as the host for uh, his and hers. I think it was Numbers Never Lie at that point. Um, you know, an hour live show, and she believed in me. She made it happen. She wasn't worried, like I said before, about, oh, she's going to take my job or there's only enough room for one of us. She saw me, and she thought I was talented, and she gave me a leg up. And immediately after that show, then I started doing Oberman. Then I started doing Outside the Lines, and I started doing Around the Horn. So she opened up this door for me because she wanted to uplift. And so that's been a massive example for me, for anybody that comes up behind or alongside me, that I want to be like Jamel for them. Um, and then Laura Gentili, who's uh, one of the highest-ranking women at ESPN now, um, senior VP, and she started ESPNW. And it took years of her battling within the company to tell them that this was an important website slash offshoot brand of ESPN that we needed to have a space that was focused on female athletes and sports fans. And even just as an incubator within the company for the kind of coverage and stories and perspective that we might need on the biggest sports leagues and the biggest players, but having a space where, um, you know, th- you knew that things would be covered well and right and women would be able to, and, and men would be able to find those stories they're looking for. So um, she's a, a super a badass sort of inspiration as well. So last question, because you are a busy lady and you got tons of stuff to do. What do you see yourself aspiring to for the next 20 years in this career? What is your goal? Where do you want to be? And what legacy do you want to leave for this space with your name on it? It, it changes over time, but I think the through line, the, the, the thing that's remained is I would like to have my own TV show. I would love for it to be either something that's sort of, I know I want it to be smart, potentially satirical pieces, um, maybe like a talk show format where I'm in, able to kind of like take some of the elements of my podcast, uh, my interest in people and interviewing them and, and what makes them who they are um, combined with some of the funny elements that I, that I, you know, bring from my second city days. Um, so something like that. Um, and then, you know, there's a part of me that does feel like, and I don't know how long it will be from now. Um, I might outgrow the idea of just working for a sports company because there are so many social issues and bigger, large, big picture issues that matter to me that I might feel like I can address them better without the constraints of working for a company that's focused on sports. Um, I don't know if that'll be the case. That's certainly not something that I ever would have thought before, but you know, I don't know if it's getting older or if it's the current state of our world, but it feels like those things matter a lot more to me than I think when you're younger, you're just figuring yourself out and trying to get by. And then once you get into a more comfortable space and you find success and and your voice later, then you want to use it for big things. And so we'll see. I mean, maybe I'll find that I I can strike the perfect balance of what I'm doing and what I want to say and what I want to um, impart. But uh, we'll see. Well, let me tell you what. I got big time respect for you. Thank you. I love your work. I love what you do online. I love what you do in person on television and you know it is a huge honor for me to have you on this podcast i I appreciate it i really appreciate your time and you know uh i hope all success for you and i'll make sure that my daughter rose will be watching you a lot i love that that sounds awesome thank you for joining us we hope you enjoyed the conversation intersection is powered by touchpoint media network 
podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.